Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. We've been in this series called The Fullness of Life for a few weeks now, right? We started with John 10, verse 10, and Jesus said, The thief comes to kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And then he continues in verses 14 through 15, and he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and they know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for my sheep. The reason that I wanted to just quick draw your attention to those verses this morning is this. An abundant life is not possible apart from sacrifice. It's not possible apart from sacrifice, and it's so important to understand that. It may not be apparent whose sacrifice it is that's enabling that abundant life, but where there is an abundant life, as the Bible defines it, there is sacrifice. Salvation is a gift of grace that's been given at a great cost to Christ, and it's been received freely by us. And I think sometimes, because of that wording, you've been saved by grace through faith, we sometimes take for granted just how costly that gift really is. And I believe that's why Christ challenges us to count the cost before following him. It's why he tells us that we have to take up our cross daily to follow him, right? To those that much has been given, much will be required. And it's easy to apply that to material wealth or to time, but I think it goes much further than just those, those immediate things that come to mind. For the last few weeks, we've been talking about the fruit of the Spirit, right? We started out in John 15, where Jesus told us in verses 7 through 8, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. I know we've covered this, but the fruit of the Spirit is not something that we achieve by some amount of good works. It's the natural fruit that's produced by being filled with the Spirit and abiding in Christ. That's so, so important to understand this morning. Because like Joy last week, peace is not something that's momentary. Right? It's not something that happens by, by consequence or by chance, peace isn't something that we should only be able to say we've experienced when things are going well, but something that we're able to experience um, and able to live in even in the most desperate of times, maybe even more so in those most desperate of times. So I want to look back at Galatians 5, verses 13 through 18, uh, real quick. The Christians in Galatia were dealing with a group of people who were convinced that they had to follow the law to a T, right? They had to follow every last little bit of it, and they had to follow Christ and everything that he said. The gospel of salvation for them uh, wasn't just by grace through faith. That wasn't enough for them. They thought they had to follow the law to a T and do all these good works, 
And we're catching a glimpse of Paul's response here in Galatians chapter 5. And he says, starting in verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Right? And then that is great news, that we are not under the law, because not a single one of us can live up to what the law says. Paul goes on to list a whole bunch of desires of the flesh that we should avoid in verses 19 through 21. And then in 22, he tells us about the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Christ called us to freedom and bought that freedom for us with his life. This group of people telling these Christians they had to live by fulfilling the law was basically spitting on the metaphorical grave. And I say metaphorical because we all know that Jesus was resurrected, so there is no grave. But this group of, this group of so-called Christians, this group of uh, Pharisees, were, were, were just spitting all over Christ's legacy by saying that his sacrifice was not enough. And the reason that I go all the way back to this is even though Christ, or be, even though Chad, not Christ, uh, even though Chad has covered it the last few weeks, uh, is because I don't think we can overestimate the damage that's done as, when we as Christians become known for what we're against and for what we're not allowed to do instead of the fruit of the Spirit manifest in our lives. When we become known for what we're against and what we're not allowed to do, that's a problem. And unfortunately, I think that's where we find ourselves a lot of the time. In a survey that was done recently uh, by Barna, one of the number one factors contributing to a negative perception of Christians among millennials and Gen Z was the fact that Christians are known by what they're against. In other words, we're, we're known for being Pharisees. We're known for being Pharisees rather than reconcilers. And if that's the way that we're perceived, it's going to make the fruit of the Spirit that's known as peace nearly impossible to really experience. So what exactly is peace? Right, the first thing that comes to mind for me is probably something that a lot of parents have uttered at one time or another, I just need a little peace and quiet. Just give me some space. I just need a little peace and quiet, right? I think about a place where, where it's quiet, where I can be rested, where I can be content. And I think when we talk about peace, there's probably a lot of us who think of something along those lines. 
And that's not bad because it is a small part of what peace is, but it's just a small part of peace. The Greek term that Paul is using here for peace uh, when he's listing this fruit of the Spirit is irene. And there is the world's perspective of irene, and then there's our perspective of irene. The world sees irene as uh, a state of national tranquility, security, and safety, and harmony between individuals. All good things, right? Those are all good things. But you can have all of those things and still be uneasy and unsure about the future, which generally doesn't leave a lot of room for peace. The Christian's view of irony is a tranquil state of a soul that is assured of its salvation through Christ and therefore grows increasingly content with what we've been given now because we know it's temporary and the best is yet to come. And that understanding of irony comes from the Jewish heritage because they would have associated this word irony with the Hebrew term Shalom. I know this is a lot of different languages, but these words are really important. This is a big one. Shalom was a word that Jewish people would use both as a greeting when people came in and as a sending when people were going out. Right? They welcomed people with peace and they sent them in peace. And this idea of shalom carries with it a sense of completeness, good health, prosperity, contentment, friendship in human relationships, and peace and friendship in the covenant relationship with God. And what's interesting is the words quiet and relaxed don't seem to be abundantly present in these definitions. And when you think about it, that's really no shock. But when you think about the Jewish people's lives, national tranquility wasn't something that they experienced a lot of. And when they did experience that sense of peace that we sometimes associated with, it generally led them to a disconnect with God, right? When the Israelites' lives were going how they wanted it to, that's when they tended to wander away from what God wanted. But you think about the parts of the Bible that we often talk about, right? Especially in kids' ministry, uh, the time of captivity in Egypt, wandering in the desert, taking over the promised land, right? The time of the judges and all the raids that they were experiencing. The time of the kings and the, the political upheaval. And then that, that time when the Israelites are in exile where so many great stories of God's provision come in. Not generally a time that we would associate with peace. Their entire history, the entire Jewish history up to that point was characterized by what many of us would consider to be the opposite of peace. And yet that word shalom was a word that they used and heard on a regular basis. Everybody would have had an understanding of what it was and what it, was, what it meant. Shalom was something that they expected and it was something that they really did experience. And if they were able to experience shalom, in their circumstances, then there is no reason that we shouldn't be able to experience peace to an even greater degree, knowing what we know. Right? We have one thing that they didn't. They had the prophecy of a Savior, but we have the person who is the Savior, 
They were looking forward to the idea that a Savior was coming. Some of them probably expectantly. Some of them maybe with a little bit of skepticism. But we already have that person. We have that promise. It's been fulfilled. They were hopeful, but we are confident and assured because Christ has already been here. So how do we experience that peace like the Israelites did? First, I think we have to get past the word I, right? We have to get past that word I. As long as peace is about how I experience peace, it's unlikely that we're going to experience peace at all. We have to get past I. One of the recurring themes of peace was harmony and reconciliation in relationships. Whether those relationships were between people or those relationships were between people and God, there is always a theme of harmony and reconciliation. And as long as we're too concerned with our own lives to notice and care for the lives around us, we're completely overlooking part of what it is to really experience peace. Or when the Pharisees questioned Jesus about what the greatest commandment was, he said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Right at the very core of God's command is restoration and healing. We're meant to love people and love God. The second thing that's important to be able to really experience peace is to stop comparing yourself to a list of do's and don'ts. We need to stop comparing ourselves to a list of do's and don'ts. Christ didn't come to make the law more restrictive and burdensome. He came to give us life and to free us from the chains of sin. And I get it, right? Sometimes when the rules are black and white, it makes life a lot simpler, right? Because you can say it's black and white. It's very obvious what we're supposed to do. There's little tension then with, with the way that we need to live. But that's really not the way life is, is it? There's a little bit of gray, gray area, and there's room for interpretation where we need to allow the Holy Spirit to guide us and to show us what right decisions look like. But when we attempt to live life as if it's based on a black and white list of do's and don'ts, it sucks the life out of the gospel. It pulls it right out, and as Christians, we become a people known for the things that we don't do and the things that we're against rather than a life lived to the fullest and a life lived with freedom in Christ, it becomes a life about restriction. And that's a problem. The law is good in the sense that it establishes moral guidelines, that it gives us a point of reference, but the law is unable to save us because we can't measure up to it. Which brings us to the third thing, and we've heard this quite a few times, Abide in Christ. Abide in Christ. I know that's something that we say every week, but you might as well get used to it because I'm guessing we're going to keep saying it over and over again because we cannot say it enough. It's critical to every single one of the fruit of the Spirit happening, not just peace, 
Not just love and joy like we've already talked about, every single one of them. Without constantly abiding in Christ, the fruit that we do experience is nothing but a shadow of the real thing. It's just something that comes and goes. So what does abiding look like? And I think it looks a little different for everybody. I read a book a while back called Sacred Pathways by Gary Thomas. You, you can't abide in Christ without prayer and without knowing God's word, but we all connect with God differently, right? So that the way that you take in scripture, the way that you internalize it, the way that you process prayers looks completely different. And Sacred Pathways helped me to understand the differences a little bit. So I wanted to share those with you. Um, Gary characterizes nine different categories of people, and you probably fall into more than one of these categories, but here they are. Naturalists, right? Loving God through the outdoors or creation. Sensates, worshiping God with all the senses. Traditionalists, uh, rituals, symbols, sacraments, and sacrifice. Tithing uh, structure and church attendance, generally bringing more into God's presence. Ascetics, which is loving God in solitude and simplicity, living a fundamentally internal existence. Caregivers, loving God by loving others. Enthusiasts, loving God with mystery and celebration. Contemplatives, loving God through adoration, right? Like that woman who poured the perfume on on Jesus' feet. And intellectuals, loving God with the mind. I am part naturalist, part traditionalist, and part enthusiast. It's what I came to realize about myself. I love the structure of the church and the way that it's able to guide the learning process in discipleship. How when we do things in fellowship, it makes it, for me at least, a lot easier. But I also need space to process scripture on my own. And the best way that I do that is in nature while observing everything that that God has created. Something about the outdoors and seeing God's strength and power helps me to connect with him. Generally, I do that on two wheels, blasting worship music and bobbing and weaving in between trees on my mountain bike. That's the way that, that I connect, right? We need to abide with Christ. And you might be thinking to yourself, getting up early, drinking a cup of coffee, and reading the Bible is not a way for me to connect. It just doesn't work for me. And that's totally fine because we're all completely different. That doesn't work for a lot of people. But what are you doing to intentionally dig into Scripture, to spend time in prayer, and to connect with God? The fourth thing is sacrifice. Sacrifice. We like to characterize Christianity by freedom from sin, right? Saved by grace through faith. But we don't always like to talk about counting the cost. We don't like to talk about bearing our cross and persevering through persecution. We often present the gospel as if it will cost us nothing and that it, it, it is true that receiving salvation doesn't cost us anything, but it was bought at a great price by Christ. It was given to us for free, but it cost him so much. And the gospel does require sacrifice 
in submission. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I really like the way that the Amplified Bible puts it. It kind of just dives in a little deeper. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that is, grafted in, joined to him by faith in him as Savior, he is a new creature, reborn and renewed by the Holy Spirit. The old things, the previous moral and spiritual condition, have passed away. Behold, new things have come because spiritual awakening brings new life. We are made new, somehow still fully you, uh, and yet completely different. And that requires sacrifice. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We have to be ready to fully set ourselves aside to pursue God and to abide in Christ. And that at times takes sacrifice. But apart from that sacrifice, we will never be at peace because we will never be fully aligned with God's will. So how then shall we live? I think probably from those four points, you've maybe already come to some conclusions, and that's great. That's why, we're, why they're there. We can probably all commit to a deeper degree of sacrifice, a deeper degree of abiding, being less selfish, having more commitment to the spirit of the law as opposed to the letter of the law. But what does peace look like in action? And I'll give you one example based on personal experience and one that I saw in the Bible this week that really uh, struck me. That first one, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, right? That's one of the part of the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I used to look at peacemaking as keeping the peace. Try to find compromise, right? Always land in the middle somewhere, pacify tensions, limit conflict, right? All, all good things. In college, I had uh, the same roommates and suite mates all four years, which was absolutely awesome because we had great relationships. But as you can imagine, over four years, you run into some pretty significant conflicts. I remember one semester, I think it was my junior year, where it seemed like it was just one thing after another where we were just fighting and at each other's throats all the time. Uh, and I just decided, you know what? I'm just going to move out. I'm tired of dealing with this situation. I'm just going to move across the hall. <laughs> I'll just remove myself from the situation. I had some other friends. One of them was gone studying abroad in Oxford. So I was like, it's fine. I'll just sleep in his bed for a couple months. It'll, it's whatever. It'll be all right. I was just sick of dealing with that tension so I thought I would move. Uh, it didn't fix anything. Surprise, surprise, right? Moving across the hall to live with a couple other guys for a while did not fix a thing. It just put distance between me and the problem. It didn't resolve anything. But at the heart of peace is reconciliation and renewal, right? True peace in the believer is felt 
when we experience that relationship, that reconciliation with God, because then we're able to live with that assurance. With my friends, I, I didn't make any effort to reconcile anything between us. I took the easy way out, and I, and I ran away from the problem rather than taking the time to fix it and to fix relationships. Fortunately, all those guys were really good guys, and they came back to me and said, hey, we got to fix this. <laughs> you got to come back. We've got to fix this. Whatever this problem is, we got to fix this. And all those guys were in Hannah and I's wedding, right? We still have close relations. Actually, I just texted them this morning and said, hey, I'm sharing that story from college this morning. <laughs> and I heard back from every single one of them right away. There's a moment where true peace happened for us because we took the time to reconcile the relationship. And I wish I could say I was the catalyst for that fix, but I wasn't. They were. I was just a participate, participant. All this to say, peacemaking is not peacekeeping. They are not the same thing. Peacemaking requires work, requires sacrifice, and it usually requ requires facing some conflict or some tension head on. We can't just sweep it under the rug and keep it quiet and call it peace. Those are not the same thing. And the biblical example that I was thinking of comes from the book of Jeremiah 29, uh, or it comes from the book of Jeremiah in chapter 29, verses 4 through 14. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, Take wives and have sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Skipping ahead a little bit to verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back from the place where I sent you to exile. There's this word that comes up over and over in that passage, welfare. And guess what that welfare word happens to be in the Hebrew? Shalom. That same word that's used for peace. God was calling his people to be representatives, his representatives, in a foreign land and in a foreign culture. Even though the Babylonians were their enemies, even though the Babylonians had taken them captives, had likely killed some of their family members, even though they lived in opposition to God's word, God was challenging the Israelites to change the culture from within. Seek their welfare, even though they are against you. Something I've been hearing a lot lately is that our culture has fallen so far, right? And, and in some ways, it, it really has. Some, in some ways, that is a very true statement. 
But I'd also say that it's true in many cases that Christians have fallen with the culture. In frustration, we've often withdrawn from the culture that opposes us. In some situations, we've even wished ill will on the culture. We've said things like, if they'd just get back to our country's heritage, everything would be okay. Everything would go back to how it's supposed to be. But I think in some ways that's a deeply flawed perspective because God is always calling us into the future. Right? We, we learn from the past. We respect what's happened in the past. But he's calling us into a story of reconciliation and redemption now. We're called to be his ambassadors. We're called to be his peacemakers. Whether we love the culture we're in, whether we agree, whether we disagree, we are here for a purpose. Just like the Israelites, when they were in captivity, God was saying, seek the welfare of your enemies. Seek the welfare of the culture that you're in. We are called to do that very same thing now. And withdrawing and pointing fingers doesn't bring peace. We, as Christians, need to step into that situation, into that tension with grace, mercy, and love and attempt to restore peace, not by pointing at the past, but by looking to the future hope of reconciliation and redemption that would be found in Christ alone. It's not going to be us. <laughs> we might be a useful tool. We might be useful ambassadors. But the only way that reconciliation and redemption is going to happen is when we draw our eyes and focus on the glory of God. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much that you are a God with a bigger plan than I have. <laughs> I'm so glad that you are a God who, who sees everything, who hears everything, who knows everything, and you're able to restore peace. You're able to reconcile. And you're able to do those things because you came to us with a plan out of love you sacrificed your son on the cross so that we could be saved God I pray this morning that we would pick up the challenge that you've laid before us to be peacemakers and then as we seek to make peace as we seek to fix broken relationships and heal the people in the land around us that we would experience true peace ourselves God, I pray this morning that you would strengthen us to serve you and that you would give us a clear picture of what your will is. God, we love you, we praise you, and in Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.